Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we tap experts on topics that matter most to the modern working woman, whether you are running the show or working your side hustle. We're bringing in leading female entrepreneurs to share their stories with you. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Hi, guys, and welcome to another episode of Work Party, the podcast. I am Jacqueline Johnson, your host, and today we are talking about giving back. Yes, much like the 2000 film classic starring Haley Joel Osment, we are talking about paying it forward and why it's important for women to support women and human beings in general to help one another out. In Work Party, the book, I talk about how women, not dear friends or relatives, but really just colleagues and acquaintances, help me build my business through introduction emails, recommendations, and allowing me to get my foot in the door for all important meetings. And this is really important because this is something every one of us can do. Rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful, high up or entry level. We can all help each other out and pay it forward because one woman's success is all of our success. There is no greater feeling than when you're able to give other women opportunities access, and resources to help them move forward in their own careers. When you're first starting out as an entrepreneur, the favor economy is so real. You're asking for a thousand favors to get things going. And oftentimes, these favors are irreplaceable and priceless. They are the thing that gives you that big break. And if you're thinking, but wait, if I give someone else an opportunity, that means I'm going to miss out. The reality is there is room for everyone. I was recently asked in an interview, do you think there's enough room for all these women to start these companies? And I replied, do you ever think men think about that? The answer is no, they fucking don't. And neither should we. Better together, collaboration over competition. We got this and we can do it together. And for today's expert, I'm bringing in Jesse Draper. A woman who puts her money where her mouth is and funds women-led companies through her fund, Halogen Ventures. Her goal is to fund the next generation of female billionaires. Yes, with a B. And we think that's so money. So let's welcome Jesse Draper. 
So welcome to the show, Jesse. So you're doing some much needed work, literally paying it forward for female founders um, through your business, Halogen Ventures. Can you tell us a little bit about what Halogen Ventures is and how you got started in the funding uh, side of the business? Yeah, you know, um, I run Halogen Ventures and um, we do early stage uh, consumer technology funding. So we fund early stage companies that have a female in the founding team. Um, and so, you know, some of our companies are Sugarfina, uh, Flex, which is a menstrual disc. We have a company called Carbon 38. That's really great. It's activewear. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just really important to me to be funding the businesses of the future and making sure that women were a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know a lot of the founders of those companies and love those companies so much. Um, And I think it's so great that you're a female VC. I mean, essentially, I think venture capital raising money uh, is a huge question we get at Crate and Cultivate. And women want to know, how do I raise money? When do I raise money? Can you give us a quick 101 on how funding works? Yeah. So, the way you raise money is you typically would reach out to a venture capitalist, um, one like myself or an investor of any sort. You know, there's different types. There's high net worth individuals who, which are essentially people who just have a bunch of money. Um, family offices, which are families sometimes have had money passed down for years and years and have grown it. And so it's become a whole investment entity in, into itself. Um, and then there's institutions that also invest typically larger amounts of capital. And that would be like uh, a university endowment, for example. Um, and um, were, you know, when, as far as like when to raise, the best thing you could do is not have to raise. So what I would say is you should think about it as Anytime you have to give away a piece of your company, it's like cutting off your finger. (laughs) That is equity. (laughs) You would rather sell your company owning the whole company for a billion dollars than sell your company owning 13% of your company for a billion dollars. You know what I mean? So I think that's, you know, that's sort of how I think of um, raising money because every time you raise money, people get like, basically a piece of your company or a piece of you. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of different reasons to bring on investment, but I'd say if you can bootstrap it and run it yourself, that's the best case scenario. But a lot of people are not in that situation and need to take on capital if they have a dream they want to chase. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I think it also depends the type of company you have, right? Like if you want to build a product, building product is really expensive and difficult to do. Oftentimes you're going to need to you know raise money to do that. So right. when investing in companies as a VC, what are you looking for and what were some of the best pitches you saw or heard and why? So I look for a couple things. Really, for me, it's pattern recognition. Um, You start to see patterns because I do early stage investing. So you're asking when is the time to go raise investment? I mean, I literally invest in two to three people teams. Sometimes they have an idea. Sometimes they've sold a couple products. Sometimes they need the money in order to create the products. Um, And so some of the things I look for are a killer team. And that could be, you know, uh, complementary co-founders or, um, 
you know, people who have, and meaning like people who have experience uh, that complements each other. One might be a tech person and one might uh, be able to run ops. And I look for that. I look for really, really passionate people who are excited about what they're building. It's hard to be an entrepreneur. It's a long-term haul. It's definitely a marathon and you should plan on being in it for 10 years. If you sell your company or go public before then, you know, congratulations, because typically that's about how long it takes for an investor like me to make my money back. Um, And so I look for a killer team who's in it for the long haul um, and wants to build a billion dollar business. I look for billion dollar markets with a B. Um, You know, I think that's really important because I need to make a return on my capital. And so... Uh, typically when I invest, you're raising a couple million dollars and I need that to uh, turn into many, many multiples down the road for me. Um, And then I look for a really unique product. So an example might be like, I have a company called Flex that's a menstrual disc. I saw maybe like six different tampon company pitches that month. And the tampon industry is huge. It's a $2 billion industry, probably bigger than that. But there are quite a few tampon companies and there's a million trying to disrupt the space. And so for me, that wasn't interesting. What I liked about Flex was that they're creating new technology. They are actually an alternate tampon device. You can, you know, pee with it in, leave it in for 24 hours, have sex with it in. It's like a game changer. But they were really changing the game when it came to that space. And so they have a unique direction in that market. Um, and so that was more interesting and disruptive and unique to me. And then, um, and then some sort of traction, like whether that be email addresses or media attention, or you've sold a thousand products, um, or you've, uh, sold a million dollars worth of, you know, whatever. Um, I think those are a couple of things. So traction, a really, really great or unique product offering. And that doesn't mean you built it. Like I've literally seen clay models <laughs> of what they were planning on building and that you can raise money pre-product like that too. Um, and the cool thing is sometimes they come in that early and then you might say, you know, it's a little too early for me to get involved. And then they come back when they've built it. And that's really, that speaks the world to me because if you get a no from an investor, and then you come back and say, hey, I just want to give you an update. And you see that they did what they said they were going to do with or without your money. Um, I, I like seeing that because I know that they're. it doesn't matter if they get investment, they're going to make this thing happen. Absolutely. And so according to Fortune.com, the average deal size for a woman-led company in 2017 was just over $5 million. For male-led companies, it was around $12 million. So what do you think and how do you think we can close this gap for women? So I actually, like, I'm so curious if that is, um, I haven't seen that particular study and I'm curious what size company that is because... Mm -hmm. I think it'd be very, very different. And I actually think it'd be more like one tenth of the amount or less. I mean, typically women get like 2% of VC funding to 4% of VC funding. Right. Um, So I think that's a major issue. And I think there's quite a few um, reasons that's happening. One, men control the majority of the capital. And so what I always say is, look, it's not like women versus men. Like that's, that's not the issue. Men control the majority of the capital, so they need to 
hire women and support women and advise women and not just their own colleagues. And so it's like pull a woman onto the board. Actually, I just right before this all Wall Street Journal article saying that they are like now legally you have to have a female on a public board, which is fantastic. Um, and so pull a woman up onto the board, advise them, pull them into the meetings um, and invest in women. Also, women ironically buy everything. We buy 80%. We have 80% of purchasing power in the United States. So it's like, why aren't you investing in female products? Like if you look at the cover of like Forbes self-made women's issue, over half of those women made their money by selling a um, $500 million to billion dollar makeup company. <laughs> and so for me, it's about creating these female billionaires of the future because if I invest in them at these early stages, hopefully they sell it for a billion dollars and then they invest it back into the ecosystem um, of women. Uh, and you know, I invest in men too. We have three male CEOs, but I make sure that there's a female in the founding team because I want women in leadership positions and it starts early. Absolutely. And I was going to piggyback on that and say, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to having men controlling a lot of the money and controlling essentially a lot of the decisions. And I know, you know, the founders of the, I know the founders of Flex and I know I've heard their story about pitching early on and, you know, even just trying to talk about a menstrual product to, you know, five, 60 plus year old white guy VCs is like, they're just not understanding it. And, and at the same time, um, you know, hearing stories like the founder of Rent the Runway, who went into every VC pitch and basically was, you know, told, let me talk to my wife about it. And she was like, well, the wife of a VC doesn't need to rent couture clothing. Um, so it's like, it's kind of besides the point, you know, it's like they're not understanding, you know, the exactly. consumer. So it's funny that you brought up Flex because I was her first female investor. And so think about this. You're an early stage company. You have a tiny team and you're creating a female oriented product and you've all men invested in you. And then I, all of a sudden you have a female investor come in and I'm like texting her questions like, so can I recycle this? Like, so what if, can I reuse it? Is it weird if I like wash it out and put it back in? You know, like these questions that, Oh, only a woman could. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's important that we have female investors too. You know, I think that's a really, that really, really needs to change. But because, you know, traditionally men took care of the finances, things are changing now, but it's, it's still a long journey ahead, I think. Absolutely. And so this episode is about paying it forward. You're obviously paying it forward, not only professionally, but with real dollars. But how has paying it forward, you know, contributed to your success? Has Was there a woman in your life that gave you a leg up or helped you in, in some way, shape or form? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's all about paying it forward. And regardless of being male or female, I think it's about doing, you know, what can I do for you? What can you do for me? And it's, you know, I think I'm also in the business of making connections. And even if a company, I just like, a company pitches me and I decide not to invest. Sometimes I think, you know what, I'd still really like to introduce you to this person. It might help you out in some way. And so as far as in my personal life, I always take a meeting with 
a woman if I possibly can, even if it's like 15 minutes, especially young women reach out to me quite a lot, high school, college age women and say, Hey, I want to learn about your business. I want to learn how to invest. I want to learn this. And I try my best, you know, I get a lot of those, um, requests, but I, I do make those a priority and that's one way I pay it forward because to be honest, I was in the generation of women that, um, you know, the women who were at the VP level and CEO level, when I was growing up and trying to enter the workforce, I would go and sit down with some of them or sit down with women I admired and they were not particularly nice to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things have changed dramatically. That was a generation of women who had to claw their way to the top. And because of that, I learned such a lesson of, you know, I will always meet with the women younger than me because it was so hard. And all I wanted was a female role model. My mom was incredible and raised four children, which is so admirable. But as far as a woman in the traditional workforce, my dad was really someone I idolized and he opened the curtain for me and showed me what business was. And I'm like a fourth generation entrepreneur and, uh, investor and, uh, the first female. And so for me, this, this is real, you know, I grew up around men in suits and I love men and I love men in suits. (laughs) Um, but I, I really want to change this. I want young women to have, um, role models so that they can see themselves in that position. Cause that's something honestly I didn't have. So that's how I do try to pay it forward is I, I also try to give women a lot of media exposure, you know? Um, and I think if you do have that opportunity, it's like, I'm talking about Lauren from flex. I think it's important that you mention other great women when you're out there so that you bring them a little attention too. Hundred percent. And so, one thing you said a little bit earlier, you you know, the goal of Halogen Ventures is essentially to create female billionaires with a B. I I was interviewing Payal um, from Class, yeah, Kataki from Class Pass, and uh, for an event we did a, a few months ago, and she said something that I thought really resonated not only with myself but also with the audience, and she was like, "Yes, run a successful business, run a successful small business, but we need." more female billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires. We need women creating Amazons. Um, And I thought that was so interesting because she, you know, was talking about the fact that women like to be modest about their success. And, you know, we like to dream reasonably, right? Like we're like, I can build this company and I'm going to build it to a $10 million company or whatever it is. But we're not the type of people who are like, I'm going to disrupt the entire technology business, create Amazon and be a billionaire. Like it it just isn't a natural thing. What's your thoughts on that? and, And why do you think it's important to start dreaming bigger as women? I think, um, you know, she's, it's so right, you know, but uh, she hit the nail on the head. I think women do need to think bigger and I see it every day in these pitches, but also as a woman running a company, brag about it, brag about it to everyone, brag about it to the people next to you in the elevator. Um, tell, every one of your friends about what you're doing, because you just never know where that next sort of leg up is going to come from. And if you you can't tell people about what you're building, who can, because you're the only one who can see the vision that you see and you're leading the company, just like Payal led class pass and created that incredible brand. I think that's so, so important to get out there. And women have like, I don't know why we're less confident. Like there's been all these studies and it happens when we're little girls. Like I think it's around 10, you for some reason become 
just less confident. And so women have to talk themselves into it. And I meet with women all the time who are like, I just feel uncomfortable sharing that about myself. I'm like, share it. Like you're like a VP at a huge corporation. Like talk about that, brag about it. You have so much more knowledge than so many other business people. And I think it's, you know, I think it's really, really important. Another problem I see, um, when I take these female pitches is like, they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, how big do you think this could get? And, you know, I want billion dollar markets, as I said, and they'll say, I think we could get to maybe like, you know, a 50 million size company. And I'm like, okay, um, take that number, multiply it by a thousand, multiply that by a thousand, figure out how to get your business there and then come back to me. And like, I, I just want these women thinking, bigger, bigger, bigger. And a lot of them don't go after the billion dollar markets or don't even know that their business could get that big. And so I don't know what it is. We're more reasonable. We're more, uh, thoughtful. We raise half as much capital and make double the return because we don't just go raise, you know, $7 million on an idea with no backup. We actually think we only need to raise 2.5 million. So like, that's all we're going to raise. So I'd say raise more money, think bigger, build bigger. What do you think it takes to be a successful entrepreneur in 2018? Something. Oh, like, I mean, personality wise, I mean, there's so many ways I could answer this question. I'm going to go with personality wise. You need to be able to walk through fire and get out there and you need to be flexible and malleable. And if it's not working one way, pivot and make it work another way and know that there will be times where you have zero dollars in the bank and you still need to make it happen. You literally need to be able to just be so confident that you live and breathe what you're selling and very authentic. Um, I think passion is a huge thing. You really need to be passionate about what you're doing because it's all you're going to talk about. And it's all you're going to do. I, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not passionate about it and you have to work like 150 hour week, it's going to be the worst week of your life. <laughs> so true. So, so true. To wrap it up here, what is your number one piece of advice for women looking to raise money? So I'll, you know, here's what I would say. Go meet as many people as you possibly can. You know, I raised a fund and um, I met with like 150 investors and I closed maybe 35 of them. And so that's a lot of no's. And um, what I would say is none of those meetings were bad. Like I was sitting face to face with Diane von Furstenberg telling her about what I was building and she's so excited about it. I'm I'm like, I don't care if she invests or not because I'm sitting with like Diane von Furstenberg and that's awesome. And you meet incredible people. And I think, you know, if you don't know where to start as far as building a network, I think that's the most important thing um, is just, you know, reach out to a friend who is in the finance industry and then say, who do you know? Who do you think I should meet with? And ask them, who do you think I should meet with? And just meet with as many people as possible. I think that's something that women don't do for some reason. They don't build this enormous network. Um, and I think that's something that's been really, really helpful to, uh, to me. 
I mean, the boys club exists. The girls club has to exist. I mean, hopefully Creighton Cultivate is playing some role in that. But Jesse, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. You're such a wealth of information um, and you truly are paying it forward to many women. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's go to the CNC headquarters and check in with our fabulous marketing coordinator, Teal. What's going on in CNC world? Hi, Jackie. So every year at Create and Cultivate, we celebrate our 100 list of women dominating in their career fields. It is so much fun to put this list together and so much work, but definitely pays off. Yeah, I love that we give recognition to women across 10 different categories. In our 100 list last year, we featured some really talented women in philanthropy that are paying it forward. We've interviewed Lily Singh, founder of Girl Love, Monique Coleman, ambassador for Girl Up Foundation, the co-founder of Pab Love Foundation, and so many more women. These businesses raise funds for cancer, spread positive messages for younger girls across the world, and so much more. Yes, the list is amazing. So beyond philanthropy, we feature entrepreneurs, women in STEM, beauty, fashion, and we're putting together our list for next year. So excited. Our 100 list drops in January, so make sure you send us your submissions on social. Thanks, Teal. Season one of Work Party, the podcast, is brought to you by LinkedIn. Before we introduce you to our special guests, allow us to introduce you to LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network and our partner for season one of Work Party, the podcast. LinkedIn is a community of over 500 million professionals that are ready to help, support, inspire, and push you to achieve your goals. Whatever your definition of success is, there are people on LinkedIn that can help you get there. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, the one and only Kristen Bell, actress, philanthropist, and co-founder of This Bar Saves Lives. Not only is Kristen one of the most down-to-earth, loveliest, talented humans ever, she truly embodies the ethos of paying it forward, using her platforms to advocate for those less fortunate and drive awareness to the issues most important to her. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Yay! So today's episode is about paying it forward in both big and little ways. I referenced earlier on in the episode some of the little things that helped me along the way, like women or acquaintance, acquaintances who were able to give me a leg up, an intro, and all you know access to an all important meeting I might not have got otherwise. So, what were some of the ways early on that women supported you in your career? Um, wow. Well, first, let me start with saying I have a terrible memory. So, there's numerous women that when I leave this office, I'm going to go, "Oh, I knew I was supposed to mention her. I was supposed to mention her." I mean, I will say growing up, I had, um, you know, I had a mom and a stepmom who both worked. So I had a really good example of what um, like hardworking women who balance a job and being present mothers was like I had that example. Um, I also had two older sisters, which who definitely did their job of putting me through the ringer and, and making me cry as often as possible <laughs> when I was little um, to sort of, you know, build all my, my endurance and my thicker skin. You know, my kids started preschool a couple of years ago and my daughter just started kindergarten. But at preschool, you hear all these horror stories about what drop-off's going to be like oh, and God. other moms and this like narrative that is sort of like a horror movie. And I just didn't experience that at all I felt so comfortable and safe and like every other person was looking around with the the same level of insecurity that we looked around when we were in preschool or elementary school like 
we're all here. Are we doing this right? And does anyone want to talk about how we're doing it? Or maybe even not. Let's forget about how we're doing it and just have coffee. So I feel like um, that was a, a, a surprising experience. And I met a ton of other mothers, some who worked and some who didn't, who I felt helped me um enter the stage of um, raising my children in a school environment um, and that is currently as far back as my memory dates yeah so <laughs> that's the one I'll reference well it, it kind of feeds perfectly into one of my other questions which was the narrative you're talking about so specifically moms like mean moms that whole narrative but obviously there's been this narrative at least from when I was growing up where it was always like women pitted against women, like in kind of this like negative fashion. And I think that's kind of died out a little bit. I don't think women are innately against other women. I actually think the opposite. I think women are the gender, if we're going to make sweeping stereotypes, that Let's tends to be prone to empathy mm-hmm. and giving the benefit of the doubt and being more agreeable. And by the way, moms who don't support other moms or women who don't support other women, there's a name for that. It's called being a jerk. It's not that it's women infighting. It's just you're a dick. (laughs) And and you can be a dick whether you're a guy or a girl. Like, if you're a dick, you're just a dick. Am I allowed to say that? You're allowed to say dick. Okay, if... (laughs) If you're a dick, you're just a dick. It's so true. I, I, you know, maybe like in third grade, some girl pushed me, but she was just a jerk, you know? You know, that's not a woman (laughs) not supporting other women, that she was a dick. You know what I mean? Yes, 100%. I love that. So, okay. So one of my favorite internet videos of all time was the pink sourcing campaign you did with Huffington Post. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's essentially this hilarious video that you need to watch immediately where you parody the gender uh, pay gap. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about that campaign and, and why it was important to you? So I did pink sourcing, you know, to poke fun at the pay gap, which is very huge and very real and exists that women are earning about 80% of what men, I mean, 80 cents for every dollar that men are um, earning. And black women earn 65 cents for every dollar a white man earns. And Hispanic women earn 61 cents for every um, dollar a white man earns. And it's it's interesting because after I did pink sourcing, which I thought was very valuable and it was it's I always like poking fun at a subject so that it feels digestible in the way that John Oliver does like if you wrap a really difficult issue in comedy people will listen more obviously you have a massive platform when it comes to social media with the Me Too movement, every town and, and so on and so forth, so many people have gotten more active in the movements around them than ever before, partly due to social media. Um, and you said something at the SAG Awards. I'm just going to um, read a quote. You said, as we are marching lives forward with active momentum and open ears, let's make sure we are leading the charge with empathy and diligence because fear and anger never win the race. What is your advice to someone who wants to get involved and has no idea where to start? Um... I would say start, I start everything from the solution backwards. And that's how I parent as well. Um, And I probably will reference parenting a lot because it's, uh, I do it every day and it's the most challenging thing I've ever experienced. And I feel like I learn about myself through it a lot. So a lot of my examples come from there. But I start with the solution and work backwards. So if you want to see, like I've currently been working with immigrant families together right now. Um, If you want to see change, 
you have to make the problem as small as possible. Um, because again, we're living in a world that's too big for what our brains can handle. Our software has not updated yet to work in groups like this. You have to go, okay, I just want to make a difference. Well, how do I make a difference? Well, I probably talk to someone who knows how I can make a difference. Great. So make a phone call, direct message someone who's working on the topic and say, what do you need? You don't have to have the answer. You just have to know how to ask a question. Like there, I was, I was having lunch with some of my um, NBC executives who work on my show, The Good Place, and they were talking about the retreat they just took. And they have like a company retreat. And one of the um, like experiences they had was everyone was given a partner and like a group of 80 and they were all tangled kind of like um, in this string. Their hands were tangled in the string together and they had to figure out how to get out. But it was like complex. The knots were complex. And they said, okay, um, the, the, you know, uh, people who were walking around were like, okay, you have however many minutes to get out, go. And then everyone was trying to focus and go, okay, if you lift your left hand over my left hand, and maybe if I put my knee up, I can get my arm out. And then one of the women stopped and looked at uh, one of the people who were running and said, can you tell me how to get out of this? And he goes, oh, absolutely. Here's how you do it. And the, the goal was to get you to ask someone who knows the answer. And then she started running around telling each of the little individual groups how to do it. And afterwards, the takeaway was everyone should have asked someone who knew. And she could have even been better by walking right over to the microphone and telling them as a group. So understanding how to um, amplify your message or make your message efficient, which would have been the example of her getting to the microphone as opposed to telling each of the 40 or 80 members individually, and also asking someone who knows. Like, I contacted Immigrant Families Together because I was up at night about child separation, and I said, what can I do? And she said, well, here's the website, read it through. Um, I would love to come, if you have a group of uh um, really engaged parents that would like to help I'd love to fly out we flew her out she spoke to us she gave us a ton of needs and every different parent said okay I can do that I'm on cell phones I'm collecting cell phones wiping them putting phone numbers to them she's gotten out 27 women and they've been driven across the country to their families reunited put up in um, some sort of housing that they can afford for a year while they're given a pro bono lawyer and everyone's helping along the way some people are doing the driving I'm doing the cell phones I guess what I'm saying is always ask someone who knows I love that and you know I think that's such a great lesson in the sense that I think sometimes we're so bogged down on focusing on our own stuff that we're like I'm gonna figure out how to do it in my own way whereas you can just ask you'll never find the solution because you just don't have it in you. It's like, I don't have it in me to memorize all these statistics, which is why I have my computer open in case I need to reference them. Nobody, and it's, that's okay. That's actually part of being human. We are so flexible and can move through different topics and be experts at one point and then forget all the information and come back to it. That's the great part about us as a species. And you just have to be okay with not knowing and then all of a sudden the answers open up to you You're like oh I have to ask someone oh I have to think about the five things they told me and what is the most accomplishable for me and yeah I feel like I'm talking in very general terms I hope it makes sense but that's how I start every problem because what you can't do is I was I was at this climate change event last night listening to Al Gore speak, who is so incredibly well-spoken. And he said it, he really can't stand the people that go from causing immediately to despair and do not take the intermediary step 
of trying to solve it. And that made that rang true to me all night last night. I was like, you can't be a part of a problem, whether it's not voting, whether it's climate change, whether whatever it is, and then immediately start complaining about it. You don't have the right to complain unless you are trying to solve it. That is part of what growing up means. Exactly. I mean, it's it's really true. I mean, I think about everything that's happening in the world right now and all the steps that we're trying to take to like better ourselves and have these conversations. But I think what's so impressive about what you've done is like you've really stepped up and you speak and talk about all these different issues that you're a part of or passionate about, which is that something that came naturally to you? Because I think some people are really apprehensive about doing that or nervous. I mean, like even thinking about the Me Too movement, like women who aren't, you know, famous or whatever it might be, who are suffering in a, you know, a junior level position are like, yeah, if I'm going to say something, it might not go the way it went for some of these other women. You know, how do you find that? Like, I mean, I guess confidence is, is part of it, but. Well, it's two reasons. Part of it's privilege. Because I have a platform and if someone, for instance, comparing me to someone at a junior level position that might be suffering, if I say something that backfires on me, I have a platform to retort. They might not. So part of the reason I'm allowed to do it is very simple privilege that I acknowledge. I have an easier time talking about these things because people listen to me. It is a much different situation when you feel so hesitant, like you might even lose your job. That is very, very, very different. And I absolutely sympathize with those situations. And I'm not sure how to get around that other than being open ears and and hoping that the other women and men and men for the love of God, we cannot leave them off in your workplace, support you and listen to you. Because we can't, one thing with the Me Too movement that terrifies me is the separation of the sexes. Because guess what? We can't do it by ourselves. We can't just like ostracize all men to go live on some remote island in Madagascar. Like A, we need them to procreate. B, like we need them. And what I need is for men who have made bad decisions um, shady decisions or even terrible decisions to be just like my toddlers told what they did wrong and told how to rectify it and have someone monitor that their behavior has changed in the future. I believe very much in that model of forgiveness. Um, so there's a big difference between how I'm allowed to speak out because I can use my voice and people will listen if I need to fight back. But I also always come from the school of thought of what Eleanor Roosevelt said, which is no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And that, every time I hear it, kills me. I'm like, wait a minute, I have to, I have to agree to feeling shameful or shitty? Oh, no. No, I'm just not going to do it. Because I believe that self-esteem comes from esteemable acts. I participate in a lot of esteemable acts, so my self-esteem is high. And I don't believe that anyone can make me feel hesitant to talk about something that I believe in. Um, that also has to, you know, falls in line with the fact that I'm um, outgoing and nosy and bossy and chatty. So I don't know that I could be quiet if I tried because my heart hurts too much when I'm quiet. I like when people cooperate. I don't like domination. I like cooperation. My goal in life is to reduce hap reduce suffering and promote happiness. On that note, I want to talk about this Bar Saves Lives. So you are the co-founder of this company. So I think a lot of times when people see celebrities as part of companies, they're like, oh, they're the face of the company. But you are 
a co-founder. You are in it. You are running this business. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this company started and where it is today? Yes. Well, Ryan Devlin, who I worked on Veronica Mars with, um, was in my living room like six years ago and he was on some tangent about how he's, he's always complaining about something in the greatest way because Ryan's incredibly active so I'm always ready to listen to his complaints because I'm like he's about to have a mega idea he does a lot of philanthropic work and he's a he's a very good person but he was complaining about um having seen having witnessed firsthand some acute childhood malnutrition cases in a trip he took to Africa and he said why is there no give back in the food space he said I was watching an Anderson Cooper profile on this um, thing called Plumpy Nut, which is essentially like a packet of peanut butter and uh, dried milk and vitamins. And it can take a child who's on the verge of death, who's like a skeleton baby, and in three months make them like a plump, beautiful, happy baby with like, um, you know, reversed brain development and all the things that they need. And he's like, what a world we would live in if everyone who needed those packets, the UN drops those packets, save the children drops those packets. I mean, big, big players drop them in times of, um, you know, like earthquakes and, and famine. What if everyone had an endless supply? What if we could create a four business model that, that made that possible? And so we said, what if we created a bar where everyone you buy feeds a child one of those packets? And it came out of that idea. And then Ryan started truly just cooking granola in his kitchen with his wife, Kara, which is still the cutest part about this whole business. Um, but because malnutrition is the number one cause of death in children under five, and it was just unacceptable to us. So we called everyone we knew who knew how to run a business, asked them questions, um, called different companies that manufactured granola bars and asked them where they did it, found a company um that would make them for us in upstate New York and then partnered with, we've had a lot of giving partners over the years. Currently we're partnered mainly with Action Against Hunger, but we also partner with Second Mile Haiti. And we said, we don't, once we start selling these bars here in America, we don't know how to hand them out. So again, let's call someone who knows how to hand them out. We called these other places, Second Mile Haiti, Action Against Hunger. And we said, hey, can we just give you some of these? And then you have a supply and you hand them out because your data in your job of philanthropy tells you where to drop them. Because in philanthropy, you, you have to watch out. You can definitely make mistakes. You can deliver a bunch of shoes to a local community in Africa and you can put the local shoemaker out of business. There are a lot of things to think about, which is why you have to go to a smarter person. Find a smarter person than you is the way to run a business. Um, and we got behind every certification that we would want. We didn't want um, to make like a food product that in two years we'd be like, oh shoot, we should have done fair trade chocolate. That's a bummer. So we got every certification we wanted and that we felt comfortable with, um, fair trade and gluten-free and non-GMO and started calling companies. And that's one of the things that I can do with my privileged life is call people at Starbucks and say, can I have 20 minutes of your time? And we gave them our pitch that we believe that for-profit, for-good companies are the future of this planet. I love donating money, but there is a fatigue to donating. I think if people are uh, receiving something good, they're buying bars they would buy to put in their kids' lunches no matter what, and they're also knowing that they're feeding a child and contributing to ending global childhood hunger, everybody wins. I think responsible businesses are what is going to save the planet. That's why we didn't start a charity. That's why we started a for-profit business. Exactly. And 
from that couch and that conversation and cooking granola in a kitchen to 3.5 million meals served to children in need. I mean, did you ever think the impact could be so large? I, well, the humble answer is I didn't, but I did. I did because I know I'm a consumer. I'm, I'm someone who thinks like-mindedly with a lot of other consumers that if I have the choice between buying something that I think is ethical and doing good for the planet and good for someone else, that's the product I'm going to choose. So I feel like people were sort of starved for a product that wasn't just good. It wasn't just the best wholesome ingredients. It wasn't just delicious, but it was also manufacturing change on a global level for goodness, reducing suffering, promoting happiness. I feel like that is such an easy choice. And I have faith in the human race that that's what they're going to choose. You said something at our Austin event that resonated with me, and I've reset it like a thousand times to a bunch of people, but you said you vote with your dollars. Your dollars and what you spend your money on matter. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that? I look for companies that lead with um, positivity and give backs, especially. And I look for them to back it up with more than just messaging. Like on our website, it's very transparent. You see um, the number of bars that we've given out. You see where we've dropped them. You see images. You also see, you know, we sent um, like a sort of technology bundle to Kenya a couple years ago and asked the moms at the clinic that we were mainly dropping at to take pictures every week of their child. So over three months we had um, visuals to show our customers like this is you know this kid this child and here's how you know ill they were and then three months later here's what they looked like so you know what you're contributing to I think transparency is a necessary part of um, of business and I think that every business can be as transparent as they want to be. And I look for that transparency. Like there's a lot of places like, you know, like Everlane is a clothing company that makes like super cute basics like Gap does, except on their website, they don't have any brick and mortar. They show you the factory. They tell you the name of the person that made your clothing. And they say, here's how often we've inspected this factory. Um, I look for things like that because as a consumer, I deserve that. I deserve that. And I think this is becoming more and more common. And I think, and again, there was this study, and I'm not going to get the statistic right, but Gen Z and uh, early millennials, when looking for a place to work, their number one thing they were looking for was, what's the social good aspect of this company? Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, if if the workforce starts demanding it of the businesses, more and more businesses will be socially good, transparent. Everything is consumer driven. The consumers have all the power and they don't feel like they do because they're segregated into individuals, but they do. My husband and I, when we had kids, um, we didn't want to show pictures of our kids because I don't know if my kids are going to grow up really shy and would want pictures of themselves. I also don't ever want to be in a situation where I'm at an airport and someone comes up to my child and says, hi, Lincoln. Like, I don't ever want that. That would be so uncomfortable for me and uncomfortable for her and just be scary. So we didn't post pictures of our children. And when we were followed by paparazzi, we took this stance and created this hashtag called the no kids policy because we we wanted the consumers to know that they had all the power and we took this hashtag no kids policy to every magazine and media outlet access hollywood et us weekly people and said 
Um, we are driving a campaign called the No Kids Policy where you are not allowed to print pictures unless you have the parent's consent. That is not a celebrity issue. It's a parenting issue. If my child goes to elementary school and they want her picture in the yearbook, I sign a form because that's my choice. That's a parenting issue. So if you don't abide by this, people are going to stop boy start boycotting your um, media outlet. And not to mention the parents who you are denying permission are no longer going to be giving you content. So I will not be sitting down with an interview with Us Weekly or People Magazine ever again unless you agree to the no kids policy. And we got like 150 celebrities within like two days. People who didn't even have kids. Before Scarlett Johansson had a kid, she was like, oh, obviously, absolutely. Ellen DeGeneres doesn't have kids, but she was like, oh, obviously. So these outlets were pressured and it was they were pressured because of the consumer backing up the celebrity saying, oh, yeah, none of us want this anymore. And I just feel like that was such a great example of something I didn't think would be successful, where when we put it online in a hashtag, hundreds of thousands of parents and non-parents started hashtagging it saying, I absolutely won't buy a magazine unless they're abiding by the no kids policy. It's all up to the consumer. That's such a powerful anecdote. And I think it's so true. And and just like you said, just because you're all separate buying the same thing doesn't mean you can't be one united force for mm-hmm. bettering something. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Um, so obviously, you know, working in Hollywood feels, you know, at least from the outside, like a very cutthroat kind of industry. Um, but for you, you mentor a lot. So you mentor other people. Have you, were you mentored? And why do you think mentorship is so important? Because none of us can do it alone. I mean, we are tribal animals. We grew up in groups. We are not solo animals. We are we are pack animals. And it takes a village, it takes a tribe, all those cliches, they're all true. I've been mentored by so many people, men and women, that I've just taken nuggets from. I mean, I'm currently, they don't really know it, but being mentored by Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle. I um, mean. I'm their number one student, um, even though they they don't know it. Um, that's irrelevant to me uh, because I am a good steward and I'm a good study and I listen to every single thing they say. But I look to people that are smarter than me all the time. And that's really what a mentor is. You don't have to have someone that's giving you a ton of personal attention. You just have to have open ears. Anyone can be your mentor. It's okay not to know everything. Look to the smarter people in your life and have them transfer the information into you. I think when we realize we have to rely on one another, everything gets easier. It's when you ha- you think you have to do it all alone. You have to know about every topic. You have to solve every problem. That just creates stagnancy. And what are some ways you think women can help other women in little ways or bigger ways? I mean, the easiest and most cliche of everything is just the golden rule. Treat other people how you want to be treated. If someone is having a bad day and it's another woman, don't immediately jump to the conclusion that she hates you and she's a mean girl. You also give people the benefit of the doubt, which I will say we as women are much finer tuned to do than men are. Again, another sweeping generalization that I'll probably (laughs) get called upon, but we are. Mm -hmm. Our sense of empathy is just higher, usually, usually. Um... Just look to someone else like they were you. How would you want to be treated in this situation? 
And and that's, by the way, the lessons you tell your kid, if you're a mom, the lessons you tell your kid, tell them to yourself first. Remind yourself to share. Remind yourself to look for the person that's struggling when they're, you know, um, they, they're struggling on their way to their car and can't get their car keys and ask them if they need some help. Like kindness goes a long, long, long way. Also, never forget that the things you want for yourself, opportunity, safety, healthcare, peace of mind, you have an obligation to want those for other people. Or you're a dick. Or you're that third grader. I mean, pushing you on the plate. Truly, that, that's how I think about it. Like, I have an obligation, I have a responsibility to want those things for other people if that's what I want for myself. Otherwise, it means I'm selfish and I'm not selfish. So obviously, beyond being a philanthropic or philanthropic goddess and co-founder of This Bar Saves Lives, you are working a ton right now. Um, obviously, recently announced reboot of fan favorite Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then also, you know, obviously, you are a mother. You are a co-founder of a business. You're working. You know how you sort of approach your day to day and kind of keep everything in check. Well. I, starting with Veronica Mars, I had such a fun time on that show. She's a superhero without a cloak. Um, She fights for the underdog. I think as I've grown um, up, I've, the jobs that I take, I've realized I want to know from the filmmaker why this needs to happen right now. I want to know why this story needs to be told right now, why it's necessary, why it's topical, why it's important. And... Veronica Mars was the one thing I did that never faded for me. It's always important. She is a girl who had privilege, lost it, and made it her mission to fight for opportunities for others. That is such a good message and something people want to see, especially now. I think you want to see someone who's fighting for goodness. I also love, I just love the dialogue. I love the people I work with. It's like, makes me laugh. It makes me smile. I, the team of people behind the scenes are wonderful on a day to day. So I we wanted to reinvent it because we thought she was still necessary. She's she's um, still someone want to that people want to see, and we want to reinvent it. We're reinventing it in a um, a Hulu series for eight episodes, and it will be a much more adult version of Veronica Mars, basically Veronica Mars as an adult. And then as far as like a work life balance, which I'm always asked about, um, I rely a lot on other people. Mm. I suck at it most days. Um, like Glennon Doyle says, I wake up supercharged every morning and every night I quit and I allow myself to quit every night and I make a ton of mistakes and I, um, do not shame myself for them because I know I'm doing the best I can. I think expectations are really, 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 really important when you are trying to raise a family or trying to work a job. If you go in saying, I'm going to have the best day possible, I'm going to accomplish all this, it's a good goal, but don't have it as a goal, not an expectation. Um, When I want to get my kids out of the house on time, which has yet to happen in five and a half years, truly never, it's a couple thousand days, has never happened, uh, it's my goal. It's not my expectation because they will slow me down and if I have it as an expectation then they will piss me off and I will get impatient with them and I will snap so really I feel like mindfulness is the trick I'm just right here right now this morning I dropped my kid off at preschool I mean at kindergarten drop off is a nightmare it took way longer than you'd think because there's 400 cars trying to drop their five-year-olds off 
I wanted to go to a workout class because I knew that was my time to get my endorphins going. I came home to change and my three-year-old um, was sucking her thumb and i that's a cue to me that she's feeling sleepy and all she wanted to do is snuggle. And I said, on my deathbed, am I going to have wanted to snuggle with her or am I going... I give things the deathbed test a lot. <laughs> How would I have wanted to act right now on my deathbed? Would I have wanted to give truly my friend from high school who's struggling a thousand bucks to pay their rent this month or would I have want will I want to die with an extra thousand dollars in my bank account I, I make decisions a lot like that and I missed my workout class because I had the goal of a workout class not the expectation I sat with my daughter we read a bunch of books and then I came here and I was 20 minutes late and I apologize to you and thank God you said I was running late too we both had a goal but no one was angry or frustrated because it wasn't an expectation. And mindfulness to me is all about just like living wherever you are. If you're late, you're late. You can just say, I'm, I'm so sorry. I love the deathbed test. It's literally, it's so funny you say that because this morning I was driving and I was so excited because there was an episode of a podcast I love and I was so excited to listen to it on my drive to work. But then I realized I hadn't called my mom in like five days and I was like, do I care about this podcast episode or you know I want to talk to my mom Mm -hmm. that's such a good way and such a great easy perspective change um that I think the deathbed test it's a good one it's a dark name for a good purpose yeah but it's also like you can also then cut yourself some slack there are times where it doesn't apply because if you if your mom is being really needy and you're like I am so stressed out at work I gotta listen to this good what podcast was it it's my favorite murder it's a true crime comedy podcast if you haven't listened to it it's it's basically two women just talking and they're hilarious and it just it's the best zone out because I get asked all the time like what are your favorite business podcasts and I'm like when I leave work the last thing I want to do is listen to like an hour-long business podcast I just want to listen to these two women talk about true crime and they're hilarious I will I why I love first of all I love true crime and I've been like dipped into the world of podcasts over the last six months because my husband in January was like, I think I'm going to start a podcast in the garage. And I like put my hand on his and I was so condescending. And I was like, that is so cute. <laughs> Honey, go do that. Go do a garage podcast like everyone else is doing. That is so, I think that's so sweet. I love you. And then in February, after he had had like 100 guests, I was looked at his numbers <laughs> from a business perspective. And I was like, you have a million followers a week? <laughs> what are you? What? What? And he was like, yeah, well, I'm doing a really good podcast. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I com- felt so bad that I had not seen the... Um, his cute little podcast. Yeah, I thought it was such a cute little thing he was doing. And now he's it's like running our lives because he has this podcast called Armchair Expert because he is a know-it-all. And he's constantly spouting facts out that he doesn't know what he's talking about or gets them wrong. And the great thing is our mutual best friend, Monica, at the end of every episode, fact checks him and like dresses him <laughs> down of what he got wrong, which is just an adorable part. But he the podcast is something that I now I listen to I'm granted I'm biased, but it's all about like our perspective on life. He doesn't talk about people's successes. He doesn't tell you how you've made it. He says, when are the times you didn't think you wouldn't make it? Talk, talk to me about the messiness of being human, because the thing that connects us is vulnerability and mistakes and seeing me and you and you in me and so that's his whole podcast is about mistakes and messiness and how hard it is to be human and I find it's so positive to listen to because it's not like 
like a business podcast where you hear how someone started their business and now it's worth 50 trillion dollars and I'm like I don't know how to do that but, but tell me how you got really frustrated and almost yelled at your kid and I'm gonna turn up the podcast I'm gonna turn it up because I want to hear someone who sounds like me I'm gonna add that one to my to my mix that oh, sounds like great it. it's really good okay so we're gonna do some sentence finishers okay. to wrap uh so basically just finish the sentence but I feel most empowered when I am acting on something I feel passionate about or when I'm nurturing. One woman I admire is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RBG. My true north. So good. Her quiet grace. She brings people across the line. Although there are a lot of women that I admire currently because I have been working um, on a couple campaigns for women in different districts. One in California, Katie Hill, who's running in the 25th district. I think Katie Hill is used to be the executive director of PATH, which in here in Los Angeles is people assisting the homeless. And she is an incredible woman who I think will go very far in politics and do a lot of great things for a lot of people. And also um, MJ Hagar, who is running for office in Texas, who is a former active um, combat pilot who was shot down and has like basically the goods to back up everything she's saying about everything. Cause she's like, yeah, I'm a mom of two. Also here are my bullet wound scars. And I'm like, whoa, you are so real and so much more experienced than I am. But both of them like RBJ, what I admire about all three of them is they lead with this sort of quiet listening grace um, and they hear people out. And they don't just try to convince someone uh, to change their perspective. They hear their concerns and then they discuss what they have in common. Well, we definitely need more of that in politics. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can't live without my sleep, naps, and probably currently CBD oil. Yes, I'm really loving some CBD. I have high anxiety. It's why I'm always talking. I mean, truly, you're going to have to edit whatever the audience is hearing. It's a fourth of what I've said because you've edited it out. And one of my one of my ticks of anxiety is I talk too much. Um, and I didn't think CBD oil would do anything, which if you don't know, the CBD is like the strand of the marijuana plant that doesn't have any psychotropic. So it doesn't mess you up. You can like drive your kids to school and you'll be totally normal. But it will reduce your anxiety in a way where um, I don't go through my to do list all day. I don't get in my car and go like oh shoot, I got to thaw that chicken. And also the laundry's still sitting in there, which means it's stinky. It's smelling, smelling musty. So I got to remember to change it immediately. So it's done by the dryer. By the time I go to bed, all those little things, they just go away and I just turn up the radio or a podcast. And I still do those things when I get home. I just don't reiterate them to myself all day and dry and like grind my teeth off. I hope my kids one day will. Oh, all I want for them is to be um, content I want them to participate in their community because I think so much good can come from that for their heart and for other people's hearts. I want them to be active members in their community and I want them to be content, whether that means they work as a hairdresser or at a diner or they run a Fortune 500 company. I just want them to have um, happiness and generosity in their heart. The most important part of my work is... Practicing mindfulness. And Being this, where I am at any given time. Yeah. And this one's kind of heavy, but I hope my legacy is... 
I don't really care about my legacy because I my experience on earth involves me and maybe that's egotistical but I don't really care what people think when I'm gone I care what they think while I'm here to a degree um I think it's weirdly the opposite of mindfulness is thinking about what your legacy is. Like, um, I cannot control how people will think of me when I'm gone or what my legacy will be. I can't control any of that. And because I can't control it, I find it pointless to think about. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. That was amazing. And you can learn more about This Bar Saves Lives on Instagram at this bar and online at thisbarsaveslives.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.